0: other meeting I'm on like I'm listening to them because I'm having to do this meeting and document stuff at the same time we're doing ours and so they saw me doing like this they're like Monica's over there like dancing or something.
1: <laughs> and Monica, my favorite thing. I felt like we were mind
2: melding. I can't believe you were doing both at one time you just oh were so my kind God. of melt oh, I, I and my- still bringing the hard truths Hello, welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am Dr. Grace Pratt. I'm the Behavioral Medicine Faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine Residency in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And I am joined by three of my co-hosts this morning. As we're getting started, I had to tell them a story. I have a fancy new mic uh, for the podcast. Thank you, CFHA. And my six-year-old who loves listening to podcasts saw it and asked me what it was And I said, oh, it's for my podcast, which at this point we've been doing for four years. So since he was like two, and I guess I failed to mention it to him because it blew his mind to know that I am on a podcast. So like that took me up several notches in my six-year-old's book. And so I was uh, thinking and wondering for our icebreaker question, what fact about your life now do you think six-year-old you would have been most impressed by. So obviously six-year-old me wouldn't have known anything about podcasts. I don't age myself too much, but there were no podcasts 30 years ago. But I do think that triplets would have blown her mind. She was like, triplets, three babies at one time. And honestly, that would have blown my mind seven years ago, you know, before we knew they were coming. So that's what I came up with, and we're going to go around the table and introduce ourselves. Uh, Next on my screen is Neftali Serrano.
3: Hey, everyone. Uh, My name is Neftali Serrano, Neftali Serrano, whichever way you're able to roll your R's. If you're able to roll your R's, uh, I prefer the Serrano part, you know, that just feels so good when you're able to do that. Yeah. So, So, you know, the question is what would have blown my mind then, like not what would blow my mind now, right? So, yeah, I mean, all sorts of things would have blown my mind, uh, but I think one of the things that sort of comes to the top of my awareness is just simply, like, that we carry around with us these um, devices that we can't live without. Like, if, if you just stop and think back to your 90s self, I mean, I guess, like, some people had like, beepers and stuff, and maybe they, I mean, they, I don't think anybody would have said, oh, I can't live without my beeper you know, for my teenage cousin
2: at the time, definitely would have said that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And if you don't know what a beeper is, you know, be quiet, you know, you're, you're too young for this. Uh, But, but uh, yeah, just the idea, like it's, it's crazy how much, you know, the, if, if I ever do like misplace my phone or if like something's, you know, not working with it or something like that, uh, you know, it just is a little bit scary how, dependent you know we are on it you know
2: it is kind of inspector gadgety if you think about it all of the things that it could do and you could just like pull up somebody's face right there yeah I think that's a great one I you did forget to say like who you are and your affiliation
3: oh yes (laughs) Uh, so location wise I'm in Chapel Hill North Carolina and I am the CEO of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association and I'm a psychologist who spent his entire career in primary care for 20 something years and happy, happy to have taken this path.
2: We also have Monica Harrison.
0: Good morning, afternoon. I forget everyone's watching us at all different times. So good morning, afternoon, nighttime, whatever it is you're doing at this time when you're watching us. Um, my name is Monica Williams Harrison. I am a licensed clinical social worker by trade, um, but I am a integrated care clinician, BHC um, for life. I hail to you from Connecticut, where we're waiting on a wintry storm that's coming. So I'm glad we're doing this now before the storm comes through. I too think I'm going to date myself. So this is kind of sad as I'm listening to you guys, like I know who Inspector Gadget is, like I know all this stuff. So my six year old, I know about a beeper, I didn't have one because I was too young, but I know about it. My six year old self would be over the freaking moon about like Alexa. And like you could talk to this thing, like it would think this is like the Jetsons. Like my six-year-old self, mind would be blown that like you could talk to this thing, and this thing is just going to give you all kinds of information. Well, this thing could give me homework answers, directions. Like my six-year-old self wouldn't know what to do with that. <laughs> I love it.
3: <laughs> you know, you can you can actually. I think I think you can tell Alexa to play the Integrated Care podcast, and it'll do and it
0: she does just got to set up to and if you don't have alexa you have one of those google things i'm sorry i'm a little biased but you know one of those little google things i'm sure you can ask it to do it too but they do everything
2: they're amazing and if anyone's listening on a speaker right now their alexa's ears just perked up ready to help (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and finally rounding out our circle today we have bridget beachy like the hardest question of the whole podcast
1: is who i am i never know how to answer that you know, like that's why Neftali didn't even answer it because it's too hard of a question. Um, yeah, I'm Bridget. Hey, Bridget,
3: Bridget, getting all deep on us now. Who, who, who are wait, wait is going to turn do into we, a we exist? are, are we actually, are we actually in a simulation right now?
1: Too, too many split roles. You know, yeah. like I'm a BHC at heart, but like a director and on faculty. Um, but I guess the easiest way to look at it is a psychologist uh, by trade, but work as a B- BHC. And like Neftali, I've spent my entire career in primary care and have no intention of ever leaving. But you know, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, although until, until ha- the
3: Lakers call,
1: that would be very enticing. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, but yeah, for the last ten years, I've spent uh, every moment of my career in primary care. My six-year-old self. Would be so just over the moon about the fact that not only do I own a bearded dragon, but this bearded dragon has its own room. She would have lost it, man. <laughs> the height of luxury.
3: I'm I losing it, it right <laughs> now. I'm losing yeah. it right now. Like it, that I, I get more information about the bearded dragon every every month. Yep. Uh, it has its own room.
1: It does. He does. Not it. MJ. <laughs> Uh, has his own room it's a it's our lizard room our desert room it's themed and had it custom uh, interior decorated or design not decorated I learned about that In- interior design is a higher level of skill than decoration
2: I love it you know you showed us your uh, like basketball sports bar room sometime you're gonna have to send us a picture of your lizard desert
1: oh yes yeah we have the office and then the lizard desert room. And then the bar.
3: That's awesome. It's the
1: dual dual income, no kid life.
2: (laughs) Well, on our podcast today, we're going to extend a little snippet of our conversation from last month. So last month we were talking about workflows and it was such a great conversation. And it was one of those ones where, you know, I thought, Oh, well, let's talk about this and had no idea where the conversation would take us and definitely recommend you go back and listen to that. If you haven't listened to it yet. But there was a moment in the podcast where we were talking and Bridget went on a little soapbox, as all of us are wont to do, and was talking about the fact that we need to know when enough is enough. We need to know that the interventions that we do um, to provide incremental change are what our systems and what our patients need from us, and we need to know when to stop. Uh, So we're going to expand that conversation out today, but first we do have a couple of announcements, I believe. Um, Nafdali, was there something that you wanted to say about the conference?
3: Yeah, yeah. So uh, kind of an important thing, which is like what makes the conference super awesome is you guys out there, right? I mean, like we could put together rooms and have screens and projectors, but none of that makes for a good conference. What makes our conference super awesome are the super awesome people like the people in this uh, podcast and you all listening out there who care so passionately about things and are working on things in your clinics. And so uh, our call for proposals is open right now. Yeah, it's open. I actually gave the wrong start date at the wrong last uh, podcast. It, it was open much earlier. But anyway, it's open through March 15th. So get your submissions in. Integratedcareconference.com is where you need to go to do that. And our theme this year is celebrating integrated care healthcare workers. So there's a lot of gonna be workforce-related theme. Uh, type stuff, but really anything that you're working on right now in your world that you think you want to tell the world about, um, if you've got a snippet of data that you're collecting, if you're uh, working on a a QI project, if you're doing some program development stuff, if you're like Grace and have these huge grand ideas about supporting the wellness of providers across her state, that's the kind of stuff we want to listen to and, and just get inspired by. Um, So yeah, check integratedcareconference.com as soon as you can get those proposals in.
2: Awesome. Thank you. And I do have another announcement. We are opening a call for co-hosts. We would like to have another person join our circle here. So if you love podcasts and love integrated care and want to be a member of our team, we'd love for you to send a short audio clip. So like three to five minutes of yourself talking about something related to integrated care that's important to you. Uh, You can just record it in the notes app on your phone and then send it, email it to me. So my email is grace.pratt at integrisok.com, I-N-T-E-G-R-I-S-O-K.com. And we will put that in the show notes as well. And um, we will go through those. And if you'll be a great fit for our team, we'll get you all set up to go from there. So we really hope to hear from some people and to add um, to these voices that we have here. So having said those announcements, let's move into our conversation now about enough is enough, thinking about incremental change in integrated care. And this the dose, really, I think what it comes down to is what is the dose of intervention that we're providing? I think we see, you know... There's a couple different reasons, in my opinion, why we want to get this wrong and why we're pulled in the wrong direction. And one of them is that traditionally most of our training programs have trained us to do long versions of therapy. And second of all, I think is a lot of idealism. We see all the things that are broken and we want to help all of the things uh, but we fall into a trap because you can't help everything at once. Um, so I want to open broadly the way I always do and say, you know, when when we bring this up, enough is enough and incremental change. What are some of the thoughts that pop into y'all's heads?
0: I'll start first. So initially you say enough is enough. I think of that song like enough is enough, is enough, is enough. But in terms of integrated care, like I instantly agree that the way our training is and we end up trying to solve like a bigger systems level issue sometimes at least that's what i've been seeing lately um with some of the health systems i've been working with we've kind of given ourselves the narrative that like oh there are no other resources outside of us for individuals who might need like more intensive outpatient type services and so we have to do it in-house or we have to figure out how to do it and it has to be long term like. For whatever reason, we uh, probably because of the training, the thought that short brief interventions aren't effective, like, and that you have to do four or five in one session. Like when I start to talk to clinicians or I'm like shadowing them and I say, so you've actually just did four different interventions. And they're like, what? Yeah, you've done four. Here's what they were. Four different interventions. It's like you don't even think about it because you're innately kind of just trained that way. But I also think it leads to burnout for us, which... I don't think we think about it as much because many of us love integrated care. You're not in it unless you love it. But I think it does lead to burnout for us because then like we're trying to like we're trying to churn it out. And I think our focus just gets shifted when we're trying to fix big systems issues and having a hard time going from innately core what we were trained to do.
3: Yeah, there's there's so many layers, Monica. And I know I know you know this because you do consulting work and you see this all the time as you try to coach clinicians and coach systems to try to shift over to thinking about PCBH and targeted interventions. And by the way, that's the terminology I use now. I use targeted interventions, not brief, because there's nothing brief about what we do. It's really just being more strategic. And I think that's the key piece that's missing in the philosophy of care that a lot of clinicians bring to their work, whether they're in specialty care or integrated care. Like I, I think it actually equally applies to both it's really just about being strategic. It's, it's figuring out the nexus point of what is this patient most motivated for? What's their capacity for change? What stage of change they're at? What episode of life they're in right now? And, and what resources do they have? Uh, what other things do they have going on in their life, right? So when, when, you, when you line up all those things and you think real strategically, and this is the thing that clinicians, that I, when I'm coaching clinicians, I'm telling them in the room, you wanna be working strategy in your head. You wanna have a hypothesis, a clear hypothesis about 12 to 15 minutes into that console about where you think you're gonna be the most helpful to that patient today. And if you don't have a clear hypothesis around that, then all you're gonna be doing is you know, d- using a shotgun approach. And that's what Monica is referring to where you then apply four different interventions because you didn't have a strategy and you said, well, one of these will stick hopefully, right? Which we know MI tells us that doesn't work that way, right? You're actually going to just short circuit all four of those interventions because you've overwhelmed the patient and not matched up well with their stage of change, right? So uh, if if you're targeted in your understanding your work, most of the time for most human beings, you'll figure out that our capacity for change in a given period of time is limited, like we've got other stuff other than the stuff we're working on there in clinic in the exam room, and whatever we're gonna work on, it has to be just good enough to get us through to the next piece of change that we're gonna encounter. And by the way, that next piece of change doesn't necessarily mean the next week. That's why reflexively bringing someone back weekly is also not good strategy because humans don't change that way. We don't change on a weekly cadence. We often change in episodes, right? So we may have a period of intense change for like a month or something. And then we come back to that maybe four months later, we revisit you know, things a year later. That human change process and having a good philosophy around that, I think is another key piece of this piece. Anyway, so I'm just pointing out, there's lots of layers to this piece and on, un- un- peeling, peeling, back those layers of assumptions are key to being able to feel really good. Not just like, oh, um, you know, I guess we got to do just, just enough for the patient. No, when I meet with a patient and I leave that exam room, I feel really good about the work we've done. That's the feeling I have because of the philosophy of care and the, the, the approach that I've taken with that patient off my soapbox.
1: I love that soapbox. I'm hyped. I have too many things going in my brain, so I'm just gonna read a quote uh, to help simplify it. Uh, from the point of care resource up to date, this is regarding multi-morbidity in medical problems. So this is, this is awesome, this is in the medical literature. To maximize quality of life, patients with multi-morbidity must strike a daily balance between attending to their health problems while avoiding the potential for their lives to be ruled by the demands of chronic disease management. Clinicians' well-meaning attempts to aggressively treat all conditions all the time without sufficient attention to the whole person and his or her shifting priorities may result in treatment recommendations that the patient finds overwhelming, unaffordable, and otherwise unrealistic. So, yeah.
2: I think that's such a great you know, so impactful. And I want to share that with all of my learners because my, the physicians I work with and the BHCs need to hear that. And I think one thing, you know, we have collaborative in our name. And one thing we haven't mentioned yet either is that we're also, you know, all of us here in this call are PHCs, And I think the most of our listeners are, we're not the only ones on the treatment team working with these people either and so recognizing that our patients have complex needs and part of being a good collaborator is recognizing and amplifying the work even that our physicians or dietitians or pharmacists are doing with the patients as well um you know we we can torpedo this ship if we are competing to be the most important the most effective to have the most time to have the most space that's not going to be you know and it's also not patient centered, it's also not part starting from what the patient needs. I know Bridget held up a paper a minute ago that has is, is covered in notes, so many more things to share. So, I would say more than your quote, Bridget. I know there's other things you're thinking.
1: Oh, I just you know want it to be concise as we're on the uh, topic of less is more. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I just think that some folks when they hear like short term. And I, I love that, Neftali, that you have changed it to strategic or targeted. That's, that's amazing. When they think about BHC work, they think about it as like superficial or, or therapy light or, or something like that. And There is nothing simple, straightforward, light about BHC work. You, in my opinion, need to be a, a ninja with this stuff. You need to have so many built-in mental representations and schemas and skill sets from the five stages of change and motivational interviewing to where if you know, you do like in my case, I do focus acceptance, commitment therapy. So I have my teams on lock in my head. I have my love work play on lock in my head. And the thing that I see the biggest difficulty with new clinicians is that they don't have, they haven't spent the time on the conceptualization skills, on the theory. And without theory, without conceptualization skills, without as Neftali was alluding to this organizing framework You're going to go in and you're going to be sitting across from this person and you're going to be getting hit with everything, and then you're going to try to fix everything. And as Kirk will talk about on his complexity uh, presentation that he did on the CFHA 2021 uh, ELO, there's a bunch of stuff coming at you, but it's actually only a few core principles, if, of course, you have strong conceptualization skills. That will help you to organize this visit, what feels like a lot coming at you, to a few core things. And the other thing that I guess I want to hit home for our novice clinicians is that it is okay if your interventions aren't sexy. It should actually, you know, once you hear the patient's context, whatever your next step is should be logical. It should make sense. It shouldn't be this brilliant thing, so to speak. And Kirk will also talk about that on a different podcast. He said that that's one of the biggest misconceptions he had was that you as a therapist, you as a clinician, whatever context you're in have to be brilliant. The main thing you need to do is connect with this patient, understand their context and help them to make one step, put one step in front of the other. You do that, you're going to be making some headway. So uh, now that's coming from a person who's brilliant. So I don't know what to make of that. Uh, But, but I, I actually agree. You know, a good intervention is where the patient's like, okay, yeah, I could try that. The minute I hear, oh, huh. Okay. I could try that. I know I got to leave uh, George Costanza style. I did a PCBH corner on that. You know, you drop the mic, you go out on that high note and you're
3: done. And just to, uh, for, for folks out there listening that don't know some of the acronyms. So when we say, I realize we say BHC, where we mean uh, behavioral health consultant or some places say behavioral health clinician. I, I, I couldn't resonate more with that idea that conceptualization skills are one of the key things that, you need to work on to be effective in this approach, because if you don't have that organizing framework, you will feel pulled by all sorts of content data that the patient is bringing to you. And that's, that's what I think a lot of folks don't understand. They, they often think, well, in order to like formulate a good assessment of someone, you need all the content, right? So you need to do an intake right? You need, you need to like ask them about all the stuff that's going on in their life and how many kids they have, where they work and all that stuff. And, and what the especially fact in particular does really well and what Kirk Strassel, who Bridget was referring to, um, will talk about a lot is really just, hey, you don't actually need all the content. Uh, you need some important content and you definitely need the context. What you really need is to really understand how that patient is engaging. Their context. And you need to know how they approach uh, things in the world, um, how they problem solve, right? How they uh, conceive of the things that are getting in their way of living a meaningful life. Like what's getting in your way of, of, you know, loving in your relationships? And so, yeah, when you get to the end of that, you often don't have a sexy intervention. Right. Because you you realize you don't need to have a sexy intervention. What you're really wanting to do is help that person reconfigure how they approach the situation that they're facing. And oftentimes you anchor that with a particular strategy. Right. It could be something very simple, but you're not saying that the strategy that you're talking about there is, is what's going to change the person's life. Right. Like walking around the block is not going to change someone's life necessarily. Taking deep breaths is not going to change someone's life. What is going to be foundational for them is for them to have a different experience of engaging their problems in a productive way, in a way that helps them feel like they're empowered and like they're living out their best selves and that they have a a direction to go. When you take that approach, yeah, there's nothing light or simple or superficial about that. There's something pretty transformational around that and- you know, all we, all we do in primary care is say, Hey, if you're strategic about approaching consults that way, it doesn't take you 45 minutes every time.
0: Well, I think that well, then- that's the, the thing that you guys are bringing up for me is then when you reflect on it, how much of it is about us and not the patient, right? Like then it's about us. It has nothing actually to do with the patient. We're going in with our big, like, we're just going to try every right? Like, then it all is about us and none of it then is really us being present in the moment with the patient and what is it that the patient needs, right? Like, are we really being attuned and listening to what they're saying? Where can we be the most helpful and impactful in that moment, right? Like, where is their biggest area where their functionality is being impaired? Like, how? Like, that's the piece then that we miss and we have to realize then that it's us the whole like, Well, you know, it's not you, it's me. Like, it's really me, right? Like, that's, and how do we you know, as BHCs who have been trained a certain way, right? Because we do have to recognize that that's the other piece of this from a workforce standpoint. I mean, I think there are some individuals that have been blessed and lucky to graduate from programs that do have this philosophy that does really start to shape the core of what it looks like um, to be in a medical setting doing integrated care work. But most individuals aren't coming from that type of schooling or education. Um, And so how do we make that shift?
1: Monica, I wanna like just give you like a hug or a high five. I couldn't agree more with you about so much of what we do is because of our hangups. But once we start going back to to the science, we'll understand that the mode number of psychotherapeutic visits anybody will have in a given episode in any setting, private practice, primary care is one. So if you know that and can understand that, you would know why you can't spend all your time gathering every bit of information. You know that you have to like turn the corner on something. If you understood that that people as humans are really you know only able to implement so many things at one time, again, another behavioral principle, then you'd understand why we want a targeted game plan for what we're gonna do. Uh, and then, so I think some of this is really, understanding the context that we're in. And if you understood that the average person is going to go see their primary care provider, who they have to address how many other medical issues in a 15 to 20 minute appointment, which they say 15 to 20 minute appointment, but it's how much of that's with the MA and whatever else. So you might get two and a half minutes with a physician who might have limited training on motivational interviewing and other psychosocial aspects. So us as a clinician coming in as a, you know, mental health provider, getting 22 solid minutes with somebody that's 10 times more than what they would receive otherwise. So I think that there's some of this that we have to educate ourselves. And Monica, I couldn't agree more. of understanding the context that you're in understanding, like most commonly what happens out there in the world. Now, all of a sudden that 22 minutes, it's like, Oh, I only have 22 minutes with them. It's like, Oh my God, I have 22 minutes with them. And that's 22 minutes that my PCP pediatric, whatever friend who has 25 patients on their you know, schedule for that day, that's 22 minutes that I get to go in and help this patient and allow my colleague to move forward with their schedule.
2: I think so much of what we're talking about is asking people to have a mindset shift. And I love what you said, Monica, about reflective practices. And I think we want to invite our listeners to reflect a little bit. Like if you're feeling this pressure, if you're feeling this fear, you know, is it fear that you're not enough? Is it fear that this isn't going to work? Is it, you know, that you're not believing in the model and what can be done? I love metaphors, love, love, love them. And one thing that I tell my learners is you're not building a mansion here. You're laying a brick. You're adding one piece to the wall, because if you're trying to do the, you know, build the whole house in one interaction with the patient, it's going to be shoddy work. It's going to fall. It's you're not going to have a good foundation. You're not going to understand what the needs of that family and that patient are, And so you need to think about laying a brick Um, and that seems to help a little bit um, because what I find a lot of times with my learners and with myself too, is we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. You know, we put a a lot of pressure and like I said, at the, at the top of the show, I think some of it is idealism. We see these problems and we see people hurting and we want to help them change and we want to change all of it. Um, But that is it's misguided and it's going to cause a lot of things to fail. You know, a lot needs to work for integrated care to work at its most effective. There's so many moving parts and so many pieces. I mean, we have four years of podcasts here and haven't even covered everything. Um, And so a lot needs to work. And if we can take some of the pressure off that you are not the savior coming in to fix this family, you are not the person who's going to magically change everything and you don't have that power. And I think when there's a piece of acceptance of that and recognition of what you can do, there's so much power more in what you can do than in, you know, trying to do what's impossible.
3: And I, I, uh, I feel like we need to sit with what you just said. That was so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that last piece is so crucial that when you accept the limitations of, I would say it's just the limitations of humanity, right? When you're truly connected to your own humanity and accept, hey, I'm just one person, right? I'm not a superhuman being. I've got good skills and in. in human interaction and, and behavior change, but I'm, I'm just a person, right? And, and you, you connect with the humanity of the person and sitting in front of you, and you really connect well with that and realize the constraints they are under, the, the, the different forces that are acting on their lives, different motivations, different, as we will say, contexts, right? When you make that connection and, and you, you have that place of acceptance... The paradox is that you're freed, you're freed to do something about the important things, to make choices about where you're going to focus your energy and help that patient focus their energy, you know, and, and uh, I, I think that's what's powerful about it is that you, you, you know, take something like, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about social determinants of health, right? And those can be so frustrating when we have a patient who doesn't have adequate housing or um, has food insecurity, right? Or take something else like racial and social injustice, right? And when you sit in front of a patient, person of color, you see in their story, the impact of systemic racism forces, right? Acting on their life. If you try to go in and be the hero, and, and you put that burden on yourself, and you put that burden on the patient, right? You're, you're just gonna fall into a never-ending trap of disappointment. And you're gonna set that patient up for failure. But if you acknowledge, connect, understand, all of a sudden you can have a discussion with that patient about how racism is affecting their life. You can talk with, with that patient about what the best next step is, for working through their housing situation, right? I mean, you can take these steps to be empowered in the places where your values lie today and you can do something about that. That's, that's the power of it, you know? And I think that's why we're so passionate about this because we see that uh, mistake happening oftentimes of just like us coming in flying and thinking like, we've got to solve all these issues and then we don't do anything. Then we have clinicians who actually end up ignoring stuff Right? They won't address the, the elephant in the room right? because they're overwhelmed you know, and they start focusing on all the wrong stuff. And so, you know, yeah, just sit with that idea that, that, hey, you know what? Acknowledging your limitations empowers you to actually be free to focus on what's really important to you.
1: And Neftal, I think you said something really important about that, the indirect burden that we end up putting on patients and one of the biggest things that I'm teaching with our medical residents is don't say things like, I need you to try this for me. You'll hear that a lot with, uh, and, and I'm not being judgmental because imagine if we had to go and do a whole entire field where we had very limited training on it, like that's not fair, but our medical residents, they don't really know what quite to do with this, with change or, Hey, can you take this insulin? And they're like, can you do this for me? And it's in you know, patients are eager to please. And yeah. You know, they love their doctor and it's a great relationship. But don't put that on, don't put that on the patient. I tell patients all the time, and I stole this from Patty, who probably stole this from Robinson, who probably stole this from somewhere else. You know, it's it's a behavior experiment. Like, this isn't about me as the clinician, like, and that you have to, as the patient, do something for me. Like, get out of here with, I mean, that, it drives well, me nuts.
0: Power, right? Because then we have to acknowledge the fact that there's that power dynamic, right? And then the if- individuals or, or your bhc who is from a different culture or different background than you like yo stop doing that like that's that's just i was getting ready to cuss and we can't cuss on the podcast. like that's wait, just
1: yeah wait, yeah we can neftali did
0: neftali cuss i'm mean, oh, yeah. gonna get us an explicit filter
1: <laughs> i want to hear what monica had to say i want to hear the real version out there
0: like that but like you are hurt like you are hurting patients when you do that And I don't think any of us, when we put it that way, went into this with the thought of wanting to hurt patients. And so I need who are listening to hear us say, when you do that, you're actually hurting the patient more than you are helping them
2: let's not project our need and desire for perfection onto our patients, because here's that paradox. If you do come up with this beautiful, brilliant, sexy intervention and you deliver the perfect care to the patient and then it fails, then you're like, "Oh, well, wasn't my fault. Right. Um, right. And that's not how any of this works yeah. to quote my favorite commercial of all time. Um, it's not how it works. And it, you know, I think, what we come back to over and over. And what I'm hearing in this conversation is the humanity of sitting across from a person. And that's what I think we can come back to. And we need to, and have to is you are a person sitting across from a person. You are holding space for their pain. You are looking for ways that you can incrementally, you know, help support them in alleviating that suffering, Um, but that requires us to sit with suffering too, and to know that we don't have all the answers and we can't fix everything and we're not perfect. And so I think for a lot of us, that's where we need to start our work is this acknowledgement. Like we've said of our own limitations and sitting with that discomfort, sitting with suffering and taking care of our, there's an inherent need to take care of ourselves and our teams in that too. Because if we're talking about what's going to lead to burnout, I think that, There, there's not just, I think, but there's literature that says when we can acknowledge our humanity and maintain our sense of, of, of self, even in the face of that suffering, that's protective for us. But when we think we have to fix everything and we just are, you know, banging our heads against impossible problems, then that puts us more in the column towards burnout. And so we need to be people connecting with people.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's something you said that reminded me of a, a quote, and I don't know who it is. Um, so if you want to Google it, I'm not, I'm not plagiarizing it. It's somebody else's, but it, there's a simplicity on the other side of complexity. Right. And, and I think it does get to that place where when I'm sitting in a room, I've got all this content coming at me. Right. And I literally will do this um, probably around, 10 minutes into the consult, I kind of automatic now, something I remind myself to take a deep breath, sort of almost like an interior deep breath, take a step back, take a look at what's happening in the room, what what I'm feeling, what's going on. And I ask myself this question, you know, what's going on right now? What's happening with this person? How can I connect to what's really happening with this person right now? And I can't tell you how many times when I take that deep breath, you know, after you know getting a bunch of content and then just taking a step back from all of that content that I'm getting. And I take a look at it, the big picture, I start to see the connections between the different pieces of the patient's life that they're telling me about. And that then helps me to not feel like I'm here to solve every single little problem, but to actually help the patient see the connection between the different pieces of their lives and maybe the main thing that they can work on, usually things that are really important to them that touch on a lot of those different areas of their lives. So, you know, again, it, it resists this sort of cookie cutter idea that somehow we, we always go in and we have like the same intervention we do with every single patient we go into uh, with. No, what we're trying to do is really just really be present with the person in a very simple fashion, try to understand how they're approaching life, and feed some of that information back to them during that visit, try to use our expertise in behavioral science and uh, therapeutic uh, interventions, then to inform how we might coach that patient to maybe take a different approach, to maybe think about problem solving a little bit differently, to maybe look at the connection between the different pieces of their life that they feel like are not working terribly well and come up with things that will help motivate them, not just across their diabetes, but maybe across their diabetes and their depression. And maybe with that and maybe reconfiguring their relationship with their kids, right? So we come up with these basically cross-dimensional approaches to things that are not about a diagnosis, not about fixing a diagnosis. It's not even all always. Sometimes it is, but it's not always about fixing a particular problem. That's the other misconception I think is like, oh, you just got to pick one, narrow it down to one little slice of a problem, and then that's all you're going to focus on. It's like, no, it's not that. It's not that simple. When you connect to someone else's humanity, you just have a more com- comprehensive picture of how they're approaching the world, and then you use your best skills and, and knowledge to help guide that person to make changes that will be effective for them or that may be effective to them. That's the other part that Bridget said. It's experimental, right? We're, I'm always telling patients, I don't know what's going to work. I have some maybe good ideas and you can tell me whether these things will work and we'll try them out. So uh, I, I think I think that that humility that we've been, I think, talking about underneath all of this is a big piece of it. It's like, I just don't think that much of myself that, that I'm going to go in and really change someone's life every time. And, and at the same time, I don't short change myself and think that I have nothing to offer.
1: Yeah. It's definitely a paradox and coming full circle. You know, I feel a little bit bad that I came hard at people and be like, if you're doing this and asking patients to do this for me, that like you're hurting. Well, well, I mean, Monica, you and I are on the same page with this. So we both came hard at it. Um, but
0: for I, those who I, might oh, be, oh, good. No, you got Bugs to everybody, but I'm going to
1: (laughs) own it. I think that for anybody who's listening, who is newer in the integrated care field, let's not panic. Parallel process here, one step at a time. You know, you got to get your reps. You got to do your homework with your conceptualization, whatever it is, whatever theory you're coming from, you're going to need to know that theory inside and out. Uh, so that you can have these organizing frameworks, and then reps, and then it's an iterative process. So if you're not seeing it right now, and you're not able to see, you know, missing the uh, forest for the trees situation, that's okay too. Uh, So, you know, you get a tidbit from the the podcast, and you read a journal article, and you get a tidbit, and then you work with your mentor, and you work with your supervisor, and you place, you know, put these all together, and then over the course of time, you're going to start seeing some results here. So, uh, it it is a it's it is a process. It's it's not overnight to be able to see all this stuff.
0: I was literally just getting ready to say I didn't get to this place overnight. I didn't. It's not how I was trained. It's not how I thought about things. So it definitely was not an overnight thing. So I don't expect that from anyone else. But I'm not gonna apologize for coming hard because what I'm gonna tell y'all is like everybody's got to do their own work and you gotta own your own stuff. And so the days of kind of just like oh. Like, Pat, Pat, it's okay. Like, like no, I'm sorry. So don't call me if you want a Pat, Pat, it's okay. Because we all have to own our own stuff. And we're talking about change. I mean, we've been talking about how COVID has kind of propulted all of us and all the kind of racial unrest has pulled all of us into this almost shock for change. Well, it no longer needs to be shock for change. If you're going to make some real substantial change, that means you have to do your own work. So taking that time, I love what Neftali said about you know, some minutes in, like, he stops. Let me take my own internal self-breath because that's your opportunity to look at what else is coming at play. Are you, or do you have some implicit biases that you might not have thought about? Have you already gone three steps ahead of the patient trying to figure out what they need to do and that's not even what your role is, right? Like, that's your time to to stop and do some self-reflection. But no one else can do that for you. You have to do your own work. I
2: think this is like the peak here. And I, it's a perfect place to pause because really that we've taken you as far as we can take you listener. Um, we want to invite you to take that breath and take that pause. I think sure this applies to new clinicians, but experienced clinicians as well. You know, where are you carrying, I think some questions for reflection um, from our conversation today is where are you carrying perfectionism? Where are you carrying doubt in yourself, doubt in the system, and how can you bring your humanity understanding those limitations and using that paradoxically to empower yourself and your client and your system to have the realistic, real change that's possible. So we invite you to breathe. We invite you to evaluate and and do your own work. Do your work because that's what's going to bring the change.
3: And, And I think keep learning. You know, the reason I take that deep breath 10 minutes in is because I need to learn every single visit. That's why. It's not because I know what I'm doing all the time. It's because I just realize every visit is an opportunity to learn. And so if I don't take that step back and evaluate, where am I here? What's what's my conceptualization? Where am I going with this? It's actually a problem.
1: It's actually a problem if you always think that you know what you're doing. That to me is more frightening.
3: That's right. Yeah. No, I, I I think I, you know, I've been doing this for 20 something years. And yeah, there are parts of it I'm definitely better at than I was, you know, five, 10 years ago. But I can't ever assume that I understand what's going on in the mind and the heart of another human being perfectly. I can't walk in their shoes. I walk in my shoes. And I love the connection you made Monica with um, implicit bias because I have seen that happen where where folks are being talked to in a certain way that ends up feeling very dismissive um, of their cultural context. And, and not purposefully, right? It's not mean therapists or whatever, but, but just clumsily, I guess is the best way I would say it. Just clumsy, being not being strategic in your visit, not having a direction, not communicating that direction to the patient, not getting feedback from the patient about that direction and whether that direction is the right way to go, right? It's just this sort of clumsy I think, way in which sometimes we allow our own desires, our own hopes, our own fears to come into the room and take over more of the space than it needs to. It's not that we leave ourselves 100% outside the room. Obviously not. We bring our own stuff and all that. But, you know, it's got to be more about the patient, their context, their family, than it is about us. It just has to. Otherwise, change is not possible.
0: And it's ever the right? Like, the fact that we don't always know the answers. Like things are constantly evolving and changing. Like we started with, what would we tell our six-year-old self who had no idea about Alexas and like these gadgets and beepers and right? So like things are ever evolving. So we're none of us are meant to always have the answers and know all of the answers. That's not how this works. I love it so much.
2: I this is there's a few. Uh, few episodes of our podcast that I make my students listen to right when they're getting started, and this one's definitely going on the list. Um, Thank you, each of you, for all of the things that you shared today. Thank you to our listeners for being with us, and as we always do, we're going to have Debu take us out with a reflection.
0: A reflection from John O'Donohue. Part of understanding the notion of justice is to recognize the disproportions among which we live. It takes an awful lot of living with the powerless to really understand what it is like to be powerless. To have your voice, thoughts, ideas, and concerns count for very little. We, who have been given much, whose voices can be heard, have a great duty and responsibility to make our voices heard with absolute integrity. For those who are powerless. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you again next month.